Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. If you have an Alexa right now, they are probably listening to everything that you're saying, certainly everything that I'm saying, <laughs> and uh, is getting data from you and is collecting it and storing it. And the storage and the collection of this data and other similar activities by other companies is changing the fabric of our society. That is the argument put forward uh, by Shoshana Zuboff, Professor Emerita at Harvard Business School. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. She is the author of a new book, which will scare you. It was scary to me, but really, really interesting. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the fight for a human future at the new frontier of power. So uh, Shoshana, what prompted you to write this story, how does it differ from uh, what people have been arguing, which is that you know these companies have too much of a grip on what we do every day and can market our uh, daily routines to uh, to potential companies? <coughs> well, you know, surveillance capitalism is a very specific logic of capitalism that differs from what we've seen in the past. And while it began in the big internet companies, first Google, then Facebook, then the tech sector, it is now spreading across the normal economy into literally every economic sector. So we're talking about something now that is becoming the dominant form of capitalism in our time. It has very specific consequences for individuals and for democracy, consequences that are in their own way violent and destructive. And that's what drove me to spend seven years working on this book. <laughs> All right. Can you, um, Shoshana, can you give us some examples of surveillance capitalism uh, from your perspective? Yes, of course. <laughs> so let me go back and define surveillance capitalism, if I might, just yes. quite briefly. And then we can we can look at some examples. So it has long been understood that capitalism evolves by taking things that exist outside the marketplace, bringing them into the market dynamic so that they can be sold as commodities and purchased. Industrial capitalism claimed nature for the market dynamic, reborn as real estate, as land that could be sold and purchased. In the case of surveillance capitalism, it seems to emulate this pattern but it does so with a dark and unexpected twist. Surveillance capitalism goes after the last virgin wood to turn into commodities. And it turns out that this last virgin wood is our private human experience. It unilaterally claims our experience as a free source of raw material to be translated into behavioral data which are then shunted into its manufacturing processes, which we call artificial intelligence, machine intelligence. From those black boxes are produced surveillance capitalism's products. These products are actually predictions of our future behavior, predictions of what we will do now, soon, and later. Turns out there are a lot of businesses who are interested in knowing our futures. And these businesses constitute new prediction markets where these new prediction products are sold to businesses who have an interest in knowing what we're about to do. 
This logic that I've just described to you was first invented in the context of online targeted advertising. And the bit of future behavior that was being predicted is what the folks called click-through rates. And the business customers who came into these markets to bet on click-through rates are people that we called advertisers, specifically online advertisers. And what they did was they gave up all of the old premises of advertising in order to buy into Google's black box. And Google's black box said, we're not gonna let you know like, what is the data that goes into the box or what are the computations we make. There's gonna, it's gonna spit out a result. And if you put your ad down where it tells you to, you will make a lot of money. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. The final point on this is that while surveillance capitalism originated in this context of online targeted advertising, it is no more confined to that context, we have learned, than, let's say, mass production is confined to the original production of Ford Model Ts, you know, back in early 20th century. So, so I guess then the question becomes, you know, would people use this data and the sort of predictive power that it has when paired with artificial intelligence and machine learning to manipulate behaviors aside from buy my product? And, you know, how do you see that being borne out? Okay, that's such a good question, Lisa, because <clears throat> that brings us to the heart of the economic imperatives. That may sound like a bit of jargon, but the idea here is that once you understand that this is an economic logic, it's not the same as technology. It's not the same <coughs> as digital technology. This economic logic requires digital technology to express itself, but we can easily imagine digital technology without surveillance capitalism. We can and we have, and I can give you examples of that. But at this point, what we see is surveillance capitalism is the puppet master. The digital technology is simply the puppet. So we have this hijacking of the digital for these specific commercial goals. And within this logic, um, the longer I've studied it, the more I've come to understand there are very <laughs> specific and imperative, sorry, specific and predictable and um, economic imperatives. That's part of the logic. As they follow these economic imperatives, where do the economic imperatives come from? They come from competition. What are they competing over? They're competing over who has the best predictions. How do you get the best predictions? First of all, you must have a lot of data. So that's imperative number one. You need scale. You need volume. All right, they're competing on volume. New competitive demands arise. We need not only a lot of data, we need different kinds of data, varied data. So we need scale and we need scope. We're competing, new competitive demands arise. Then they discover that the very best, the choicest predictive data comes from actually being able to intervene in the state of play, intervene in your behavior to subtly and outside of your awareness shape and herd and tune your behavior toward their commercial outcomes. Wow, that is extraordinarily interesting. We could have a whole show on this. Uh, Shoshana Zuboff, professor, Emerita Harvard Business School, uh, author of the book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. The Fascinating. Fight Pardon me? 
Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The fight for a human future at the new frontier of power. Thank you very much for joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Uh, We will certainly uh, love to follow up on that. I'm sure that will spur a lot of discussions. Well, it looks like ride sharing company Lyft is going to beat its Uber competitor, Uber, to the IPO market. Uh, we're expecting a filing, an IPO filing from Lyft sometime today, uh, seeking a valuation of up to 20 to $25 billion for the ride-sharing company. To help us dig into this pending IPO is Mandeep Singh. Mandeep is a senior technology uh, industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, covering all things software. He joins us on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Uh, Mandeep, thanks for joining us. So, first of all, how important is it for Lyft to be first to market vis-a-vis Uber? Sure. So we think uh, since Lyft is a smaller guy and, you know, they uh, don't have the same branding as Uber has, you know, globally, it makes sense for them to go first simply because they can generate some excitement around the numbers. You know, the fact that this is a large market, we think it could be a trillion dollar market in the next five years. I think it makes sense for them to go first just because of, you know, the fact that they are the smaller guy and and they can garner a higher valuation if they were to go first. So let's say Lyft does get a valuation between 20 and 25 billion dollars, which I believe is the target, correct? Mm -hmm. What does that say about the valuation of Uber? Yeah, so we value the company based on its sales right now. So from what we know, the trailing 12 month sales for Lyft is somewhere around two billion dollars. And if uh, they do, if they're doing like about 50% growth next year, so based on a forward multiple, they are around 20 to 25, like you said. So Uber is five times Lyft. Uber is uh, revenue is somewhere around 11 to 12 billion dollars. So if you value them, you know, based on the fact that they could grow 30 to 40% next couple of years, we're talking about at least 100 billion dollar valuation for Uber. So I like say a lot of uh, Mendeep's companies you have to value on revenue because yeah. there's little to no cash flow, there's little to no <laughs> earnings. So let's go down the income statement here for Uber. Is the company profitable? If not, when do you think it becomes profitable? Yeah, so that's the uncertainty around the business model for these companies. The fact that it's a large market, the fact that these guys are have a duopoly, Uber and Lyft, is great. But when it comes to gross margins, we still don't know if their gross margins are as high as other tech companies. It it could happen that they are subsidizing their rides and drivers so much that their gross margins are sub 50%, which uh, we think could be a headwind for profitability in the next three or four years. And that's the biggest concern, that the fact that they are not cash flow positive, the fact that if their gross margins are lower, than other tech companies, then what's the path to profitability? And that's an unanswered question. So Lyft, like Uber and other tech companies, have relied on private markets and debt markets until this point to finance themselves and have lent heavily on those markets. And I'm just wondering, at this point in the life cycle of Lyft and soon to be Uber, how much upside could there potentially be for equity investors? In other words, is this still a, a very much a growth story that they're peddling, or is this a mature company uh, that is going to try to solidify their, their market share? 
Oh, it is definitely a growth story. I mean, I go back to the fact that no matter how you slice this market based on the total number of miles traveled globally, which is close to 8 trillion miles. So, you know, ride sharing is still sub 5% of the total miles traveled. And the fact that everyone has a smartphone now, you can it, track their location, you can offer them mobility services, these guys can expand into food delivery. Yeah, but, but what's the barrier to entry here? Well, the barrier to entry is the scale. So the fact that Uber has a scale, Didi has a scale in China, Lyft to an extent is the number two in US. Once you have scale, you have network effects, and this is a mode that keeps growing because you are constantly acquiring more data about the rides, about you know people, and over time, this is a mode that's hard to crack. So being first out to the marketplace, what do you think Lyft is going to do or say to try to differentiate itself uh, from Uber? Yeah, so we think uh, the fact that Lyft focuses more on the U.S. market, which has higher ASPs in terms of the average uh, ride, you know, compare them to globally, the average cost per ride is much lower. So. U.S. is a much more attractive market from a profitability perspective, and now they have expanded into China. And, and Lyft's market share is growing in the U.S. So Uber pre previously had 80% share, now it's 70%, and Lyft is close to 30%. So we think the fact that they are more domestically focused, which is a more attractive market, is good for Lyft. Thank you so much for being with us. We know you've got a busy few weeks ahead of you. Madeep Singh is a senior tech industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. a lot about trade. The question now is what will be the impact on the global economy? And there is no better industry to have a, a good window into this than the shipping industry. And joining us here is Victor Garcia, Chief Executive Officer of CAI International, based in San Francisco, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Victor, uh, before we get started, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your business and, and how much it gives you a sense of the global economy? Sure. Thank you for having me. Our business, we're in the, uh, the marine container leasing business. It's a global business. We have about a million containers that go around and we ship, uh, we lease containers to the global shipping lines. And so we've been, we're a 30 year company publicly traded. Um, we, we have about $2 billion in assets. Uh, we continue to grow. We had a big year last year. We grew 30%. We also have two other businesses, a rail car leasing business to, you know, based in the United States, uh, basic commodities that we move around energy, agriculture, things like that. And then we, in the United States, we also have uh, a global log uh, logistics business. So we do brokerage and, and intermodal movements. So with a million containers all around the world, I, obviously you get a great sense of you know global trade in general. So what kind of what are you feeling right now? I know there's a lot of trade uncertainty out there right now, but kind of what is your business? What are your customers telling you now about their prospects for global trade? Okay, so what I would say is almost uniformly, particularly on the international side, there is a uh, cautious optimism. There's a there's a feeling that there's an underlying strength to the to the economy, even the global economy, that is buttressing some of these concerns. But as they look forward, uh, they are concerned about what the implications could be of if the tariffs uh, continue to be escalated. But what they're seeing today is still good underlying demand. The U.S. economy continues to be the the strength of the global economy. Uh, there is concern about the amount of uh, slippage that we're seeing 
in uh, China. Southeast Asia is starting to get a little bit affected by that because they do a lot of trade with China. But, but uh, it's a moderate degree at this point. So I'm trying to reconcile the strength that you're talking about with the dry bulk index, which a lot of people use as sort of a gauge of the economy. It sort of gives sure. you a sense of the cost of some of these containers to, to ship goods. I'm just wondering, it's near its all-time lows. That doesn't give a very positive outlook on the economy. What are you seeing that gives, you, that gives your customers a, a sense of confidence here? So the, the dry bulk industry uh, index tends to focus more on basic commodities. So so those uh, basic commodities have been on a decline. And I think that's reflective of of uh, what's going on in China. It's concern about China itself. A lot of the stuff that moves in our containers tends to be consumer-driven. And the consumer, globally, for the most part, is doing pretty well. So what's hot right now that you see a lot of you know, getting shipped more frequently. Well, we don't we don't know exactly what's in the containers, but I would say most most commodities uh, that would you would be find in an Amazon or or in a Walmart, um, those are the kind of things. Electronics we're seeing a lot of. So you, you you know that's one of the things we talked about a little bit earlier, with this incredible growth of just you know Amazon you know free shipping just in time to delivery. Um, how has that changed your business and the shipping business in general? Well, everybody's expecting just in time. So supply chains are getting tighter. Uh, inventories are more limited than they used to be. Responsiveness is important. Um, one of the things that the supply chains are all dealing with is a capacity shortage, uh, particularly in the United States. You know, labor and uh, equipment capacity is limited, which means everybody has to even be more focused to be able to deliver on time. So I'm, I'm struggling to understand your, the sort of strength that you're talking about. You're saying that it is being driven by the United States, which makes sense to me. Are there other regions in the world that you think are stronger economically than many uh, give credit to? Well, I'd say if you look down in Latin America, that's recovering. It's, uh, Latin America has been, uh, Brazil in particular, has been uh, a soft spot, but that's coming back. Um, I think confidence back in Brazil. Um, Europe has been um, not as strong, but it, uh, we're still, still seeing some strength out of Europe. We haven't seen any effects from Brexit. Um, we're not seeing any disruptions. I think everybody's expecting that something will get resolved. Um, so Europe continues to move along, although it's slowed a little bit. But everything's been pretty tight. So for your business, what's I know you just reported uh, earnings a couple of weeks ago. What's driving your business here over the next, you know, over 2019? What are the key drivers for your company? It's going to be uh, volume. Uh, we have our, our business is contractual in nature, so we build off every year. So we we've built uh, a lot of investment over the last couple of years. About forty uh, percent of our overall investment has been over the last couple of years. And so we continue to do that. And, and we see, and we, our, our people are talking to our customers. And it's a good situation for us because of the uncertainty. They tend not to make uh, own purchasing decisions. And they're depending on us to be able to supply them. So I think we, we have the opportunity to actually have a, a pretty strong 2019. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried, worried about in as far as a, a sort of a headwind to this whole scenario? I think it would be one of the, you know, an economic shock. I think we were worried that the Fed was going to be increasing rates too aggressively and that would put a, a stall in the economy. I think that's been taken off the table. I think most people feel better about that. The other would be some kind of systemic risk related to the slowdown in China. I think that's a, that would be a concern. You know, we don't see anything right now, but that's, you know, those are the kind of things that could could really disrupt the outlook. Interesting. Thank you so very much for a great overview on the global shipping business and kind of some of the um, I think takeaways we can, uh, you know, glean about global um, 
GDP, global economy, global trade. People like stuff and they want their stuff now. And they want their stuff now and they and it comes in containers. You see those ships going in, in port with these monsters containers? And, That's Victor's company. And and how about the uh, the rail cars? With all of those containers, yes. I love watching those. Yes, that's very cool. The shipping business. Victor has to get us on one of those big ships one day, so oh. we can go out out to sea with one of those big container ships. That'll be our next one, our next trip. <laughs> so thank you, Victor. We appreciate it. Victor Garcia, CEO of CAI International, in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Markets have been relatively range-bound this week. I'm talking about U.S. equities as well as bonds, where you can see volatility or an implied volatility in, in Treasury yields has fallen to nearly all-time lows, uh, with the smallest range of price swings in years. Joining us now is Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors. Phil, has this been an incredibly exciting week for you? It's been an incredibly exciting year. This week has been uh, a little more, uh, as you said, sort of going sideways. Uh, so, but we're, Lisa, we're up 20% since Christmas Eve. Uh, I mean, this is one of the strongest periods of stock market performance we've seen, I think, since 1987. So, you know, roughly 30 years. So, but, so then my question is, have we already gotten all the gains, or are we just heading straight up? Is the next catalyst uh, going to send markets shooting higher? So we haven't gotten all of the gains for the year, but we've had a phenomenal run. And frankly, we've been looking for the spot where the market was going to consolidate and at least take a deep breath. Now, you and I talked about earlier in the year that the month of March was going to be sort of a critical month because there were sort of a couple of things that we thought were important coming up. We had this trade deal with China and the U.S. We had a deadline set for today. That's been sort of extended, but the stuff's moving in the right direction. Then you've got what I think is going to be a critical FOMC meeting in the middle of the month. I think it's March 20th. And then you've got this Brexit mess at the end of the month. I think that's March 29th. And so our view was that, you know, we'd, we'd have a nice bounce to start the year. And then, you know, there might be a little, you know, consolidation uh, ahead of uh, these three critical signposts in March, and then depending upon how well they go, then then we sort of continue the rally from there. So, I mean, it's you, you bring up a good point because you know we're we're the Fed is on the sidelines, we're we're through earnings, and so it seems like the market will be looking maybe more than it should towards some of these geopolitical issues, but. There's always the risk that these things turn the wrong way. I mean, Brexit looks as much as up in the air as it's ever been, and who knows about China. So is that more of a risk, do you think, to this market or well, a catalyst to take us higher? Certainly with stocks up 20% in the last nine weeks, you, you're, you're absolutely right, Paul. But l let's take a look at each of these, okay? You've got China-U.S. first. Uh, our view is that China-U.S., this trade deal is going to go well. But both countries are significantly motivated to get a deal uh, I think this thing's moving in the right direction. So of the, you know, of the three, I, I feel really comfortable that we're going to get a Chinese-U.S. trade deal soon, and and it's going to be uh, it's going to be to the U.S.'s liking. Uh, the Fed meeting in the middle of the month, I, I'm going to also put that in the win column. I, I think that the Fed, uh, you know, if you look at um, some of the flip flops that we saw over the course of last year versus what we've seen this year. 
you know, the Atlanta uh, speech in the beginning of January, the FOMC meeting at the end of January. Uh, you've had some interim comments. I think the Fed is, uh, has telegraphed that at this March 20th meeting, we're going to see the Fed pull in their horns on a couple of dot plots, and we're going to see them announce that the wind down of the balance sheet is going to be a lot is going to end quicker than the market had expected. That, yeah. that maybe it'll end by the end of the year around three and a half trillion dollars. The 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 Brexit situation is the biggest wild card at the end of the month because we literally have no control over that here in the United States. And and I don't think uh, uh, May and and the Brits and the Europeans have any idea what they're doing on this. So they're going to be as surprised as we are. Uh, as to how this thing turns out, yeah. um, I, I, I can I can paint multiple scenarios as to what direction this thing goes. Uh, I don't have any sense of confidence and, and can't put any probability on what any of these scenarios are going to be. So that could be the ultimate wild card that either gives us a correction near yeah. term or allows the market to say, all right, we, we've checked the Brexit box and now we can keep plowing ahead. I got to say, when I say Brexit, I just see people immediately fall asleep. So it would be really interesting if that's the catalyst that actually shakes this market uh, and, and gives it some direct uh, direction uh, one way or another. I, I am wondering, Phil, I want to ch- change gears a little bit because going from the macro to the micro, we're getting news today. Uh, our own Dave Wilson called it Fracture Friday uh, with the breakups of firms such as Gap. Gap shares up 19% now. L Brands and Sympathy rising uh, about 9 percent. Do you think that this will be the year of corporate breakups and that it will be a very positive thing for equity valuations? So, so the, the short answer is yes. And, and while I haven't spent a lot of time on either of those companies, that the gap breakup makes a tremendous amount of sense because Old Navy's been doing really, really well over the years, and their value was probably clouded in sort of the conglomerate of what had become gap. So I'm sure their investment bankers explained to them, if you split Old Navy out as its own company, and that gets valued appropriately, that's going to enhance the consolidated value of the company. Um, L Brands, uh, they've, got, they've, got some, they've got some bigger issues. The, the lingerie business hasn't been going great guns here. There's a lot more competition. Bath & Body Works uh, looks like it's great. I don't know if they're, you know, the thought process is, let's strip, you know, Bath and Body Works out, uh, and 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 that you know might be a home run, and then you know concentrate on fixing the the parts of the lingerie business that 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 aren't working. So maybe the thought process there, if Gap's doing this, then then L Brands will as well. So Phil, given the fact that uh, we have had this big big twenty percent run off of the December uh, low, uh, and given your let's call it a March catalyst calendar that you're looking at, where are you putting fresh capital to work today? So the areas that look most attractive to us uh, are domestically value versus growth, and specifically the the energy, industrial, and financial service areas are the ones that appear to be uh, offering the most attractiveness in terms of value. Uh, we still love small cap. Uh, that That's uh, a category that's done well since Christmas Eve and we think continues to do well. And, and uh, for those that need to put some money internationally, uh, we're concerned about what's going on in the developed markets. We talked about Europe. Japan is sort of sort of chugging away here. But, but emerging markets look very attractive to us as well. So those would be the ways we play it. Real quick here, Phil. Is this a year that you should take your cash and spend it? Uh, as a consumer? 
No, as a as an investor. Well, no, we're we're gonna we're gonna make a boatload of money this year. Stock market, if we're right, and and you know we talked about this a couple of months ago, Lisa. Our, our forecast off of that Christmas Eve bottom is yeah. the stock market's going to be up thirty two percent over the course of this year. We think the S and P gets to thirty one hundred, and that looked like a ridiculous forecast nine weeks ago. We're, we're halfway home to that. Yeah, yeah, and and we're still feeling very comfortable about that. We think the corporate earnings will be up, you know, maybe 5% this yep. year to $170. The multiple that was 18 times last yep. September, right. which collapsed down so, to 14, we think we're on our way back to 18. If all of those hit, and we believe they will, we've got a 3,100. That's a bullish SP call. At the end of the year. <laughs> That's a bullish call. Phil Orlando, thank you very much, Phil Orlando's Chief Executive, Equity Strategists of Federated. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.